Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, today we continue our series, Heaven Came Down, and with a story that is going to be familiar to many of us. As I've said before, when it comes to Christmas and Easter, you've got a certain amount of stories and texts, and if you mess with them, you're a heretic. So we kind of have to stick with what they are, and uh, this is about a core issue in the Christian faith, and that is the, the virgin birth. It was January 9th, 1969. Three days before Super Bowl III. Forgive me for an NFL illustration. There was a quarterback for the New York Jets. Now this was actually before the NFL was the NFL. There were like two football leagues in the US. One was the AFL and one was the NFL. And they became the NFL and those two different leagues became the AFC and the NFC. But this was back in the early Super Bowl era. And there was a quarterback for the New York Jets which was the inferior league, and he was in the Miami Touchdown Club. I have no idea what the Miami Touchdown Club is. It sounds like a really fancy bar. The Jets, again, were an AFL team. That's the inferior league, and they were facing the Baltimore Colts three days later in a Super Bowl. And one of the quarterbacks, this was the New York Jets quarterback, his name was Broadway Joe, or Joe Namath. They were 17-point underdogs in that game, which if you follow sports betting, which I hope you don't follow that closely, <clears throat> but if you follow, if we're all following sports betting, I'm going to have to do a sermon on it, so just stay away. <laughs> all right, although I am in a fantasy league, and I did have to pay $25, and Dee and I have justified it by saying we don't mind taking money from our children. Anyway. They were 17-point underdogs, which is a massive, a big underdog in a football game is like a six or seven-point underdog. That means you're likely to get beat badly. 17-point underdogs is David and Goliath proportions. And Joe Namath is nobody's underdog. So three days before the game, he famously predicted and actually basically personally guaranteed that as 17-point underdogs, they were going to win the game Anyway, in January 12th, 1969, the Jets won 16 to 7. They won. It actually has gone down as one of the greatest sports predictions in history. This is David and Goliath stuff. So I want you to think about that. A football game in 1969, where three days before the game, somebody predicts they're going to win is the greatest sports prediction in history. A three-day open prediction that came true. An underdog wins a game that really most of the world doesn't care about, convincingly, is not too impressive, really, when you think of it, in light of history. What if somebody predicted one of the greatest miracles in history would happen thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future and what if they predicted it when only two people occupied the planet? Because that's what we're going to talk about today. If you can pull that off, you are God. And that's the virgin birth. 
The virgin birth is so hard to fathom in our natural minds that actually, now just think about this, much of Christianity doesn't even believe it. I want you to think about that. Now that's not the part of Christianity we're proud of, but you can find them in liberal seminaries all over the planet. But a lot of Christians don't believe it. They're not our kinds of Christians. They're not really in our part of the camp, but it is hard to believe. It is a miracle that actually convinces many people not to believe. But what if it really was predicted? Thousands of years before it happened, and what if God guided history from the earliest moments to a young Jewess named Mary in order to fulfill this promise? Well, I want you to turn to the two passages that relate to this, and we're going to read both of them because I want you to see the, uh, the New Testament passages surrounding this. Matthew chapter 1, that's on page 1 in your New Testament. There's a Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, about three-quarters of the way through it, we start over with page 1 in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And this is the part of Matthew chapter 1 where it gets into the Mary and Joseph story. Most of Matthew 1 is a genealogy setting the stage for Jesus' uh, sort of legal lineage as son of Abraham, so he's Jewish, son of David, the Davidic line. It sets the stage that Jesus is a rightful king. But then you get to verse 18 and we move to the Mary and Joseph story because uh, David's lineage has been... uh, Joseph, not David, I'm sorry. Joseph's lineage has been proven now through the first part of the chapter, and now we develop the Joseph story. Matthew 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, before they had a sexual union, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. He was going to divorce her. They hadn't been together. We'll explain this whole story in a moment. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet or by the Lord through the prophet. And here's the key Old Testament passage or one of them. Behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. That was prophesied 700 years earlier. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now I want you to flip over to the right, about 50 pages, and we're going to come to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is on page 43. Now you had that story more from Joseph's perspective in Matthew 1, Joseph as the, in the line of David, in the line of Abraham. Now we're looking at a little bit more Mary's experience in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. That's on page 43. Now in the sixth month, now this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. That's the dating there. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. 
He'll be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of David or Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? She said, I am a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Again, Luke gives us a little greater detail, especially about Mary's experience. Matthew is giving us Jesus' genealogy through his legal father, but not physical father, Joseph. Just going to look at a couple of key points here, but I want to trace this. We're going to begin with the story we read here and then walk back to where this came from. First, God entered humanity unlike anyone else in history. There are two key possible reasons that God felt that a virgin birth was necessary, and we actually are not sure what the intention was. They both have to do with how we believe sin is passed on into the human family. So we know from Romans that we're all born in sin, we're born sinners. You didn't sin the first time in the nursery when you bit the other two-year-old or grabbed the toy, pulled it away, or pulled the little girl's hair. You sin, you come into this world as a sinner. But that's a theological debate as to how that happens. Now, so there's two views about why the virgin birth is necessary. One of them is, so a little bit college classroom here, called seminal headship. Seminal headship. I like to call this the angry woman theory, but we don't need to dwell on that. All right. You'll understand in a moment, ladies, and you will laugh more than you just did. Seminal headship believes that sin is passed on through the father's seed, all right? So sin is only passed on through men. That is the seminal headship view, that men carry on the sin nature. You can see why it's popular with many women. If it weren't for men, there would be no sin then in this case. So if there are theologians who absolutely believe this, not that men are bad and women aren't, but that if Jesus can avoid a human father, He is avoiding the sin nature. If Jesus has a human father, since sin comes through the male, then Jesus inherits a sinful nature. So if Jesus is conceived by a virgin, he escapes that sinful nature. Now, that actually makes some sense. The problem is I'm not sure I know any women who have like righteous eggs, all right? So the reality is, Some say that this is how we get the sin nature. Most people, I don't believe, believe this. Most people believe in what's called federal headship. So you've got got seminal headship, sin comes through the male, or you've got federal headship. This view believes, and I think this is accurate, that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he sinned, in a sense, on behalf of all humanity. Thank you, Adam. He sinned for you, so you don't have to. And when he sinned, he immediately gave all of us, as we are conceived, sin natures. That's called federal headship. If sin is passed on physically through seminal headship, not metaphysically through federal headship, 
the problem would be, I don't, I don't know that Mary has sinless eggs, but if sin is passed on more metaphysically, like we just got it from Adam, then the virgin birth needs to be explained another way, and it would be this way. The Holy Spirit caused the pregnancy. The purpose was not to skip a human father to avoid the sin nature. The purpose was more to enjoin the divine, because Jesus is son of God, with the human. He is also son of man. That would be the purpose then. That you've now got a God-man. This brought God into humanity. And divinity, Jesus being God, gives us a perfect sacrifice for the sins of humanity. The Bible actually never clarifies God's view on the reason. It just gives us the result that God entered humanity. But we do have an incredible set of human interest stories around the event. And I want to talk about that for a few moments. A young, devout Jewish girl named Mary is betrothed to a young Jewish boy. Now, when I think through this, just from understanding Jewish culture and so on a little bit, I'm assuming Mary is, you know, 13 or 14, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, and I'm assuming Joseph is more like 16, 17, 18, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. There were three stages to Jewish marriage. There was an engagement stage, a betrothal stage, and then sort of a consummation or ceremony stage. I want to walk through that because it's very hard to have an English text today that is understandable 2,000 years ago. The words that we use to describe their marriage customs just don't fit. So first was engagement. Now this was the perfect world for parents like me who want to control their children's futures. Because we picked their spouses. It was awesome. This is like the divine marriage plan. Mom and dad, pick your spouse. It was a world of arranged marriages. Sometimes you would hire professional matchmakers and you would employ them. Sometimes you would go to promiselandprincesses.com and you would you know, do the search there and you know, figure that out. You might use the matchmaker along with the website. But it was common for a child, a very young child, to be engaged as a child and very likely to somebody they'd never met. So you could be four, five, or six and be a little girl and your parents have picked out um, you know, a seven or eight-year-old little boy for you, and those arrangements have all been made, and you have never met that person. That is the engagement stage. Everyone was sort of looking out for their children and creating these sort of legal arrangements to make sure they were paired well with a family they trusted. All right. The betrothal stage. Eventually, these children would meet if they had not. Maybe they grew up with each other, maybe they didn't. But eventually you would meet. And that contact was probably supervised. And if the parent's choice was highly objectionable, you know, you're a little girl and you're 13 and, and you're sadly of marriageable age and you meet this boy and he's 16 and you go back to mom and dad and say, what were you thinking? I beg you, let me out of this. Typically, you know, parents didn't force marriages that were objected to by these two individuals. So typically, you could get out of a situation that was objectionable. But generally, these arranged marriages went through. And believe it or not, around the world, arranged marriages probably work better than 
the Western world's marriage, believe it or not, have better success rates. Hate to tell you that. It's kind of a fascinating little study on the side. So sometimes in the, sometime in their teens, after they've met, this has sort of been approved, they are legally betrothed. Okay, that's a word that I actually think that this version of the Bible that you have uses the word engaged. I wish they wouldn't have done it. I wish they'd have stayed with betrothed and made us explain it because it's not engagement. It is way more than engagement. So in your teens and you're being betrothed to somebody, which means you would go to a ceremony, sort of a short wedding ceremony, a legal ceremony, and that ceremony and its pronouncement makes you now husband and wife. But there's no honeymoon. You've been engaged to this person maybe for six to 10 years since you were a little child. Now you're in your teens, you're getting married, Marriage was very early in the ancient world. You're getting married. You go through this ceremony of betrothal. And then you leave with your families. And you go back home. He with his family and you as a young woman with yours. No honeymoon, no consummation. And you remained in this non-sexual state for about a year. During that time the man goes off and prepares a home for the bride, which has a lot to do with how we view Jesus coming again. He's preparing a place for us, the bridegroom for the bride. That's the analogy. That's where we get that from. So Joseph is now as a carpenter. I mean, he's working hard to prepare a home for Mary. And during that time, she is supposed to be ready at any time for him to come for her. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but I want you to, le to think about this. If he dies during that year, if Joseph dies during this betrothal year where they've not been together, but they're legally married, this is what she is technically called under rabbinic or Jewish law. She is a widow who is a virgin. That's her legal standing. A widow who is a virgin. Think about that. Seems like an oxymoron to us. It's not. She's a widow who is a virgin because she was betrothed, but not yet at the stage of ceremony or consummation. So she's a widow who's a virgin. If anybody cheats during that time, that year of betrothal, it's technically adultery, not fornication. It's adultery because they are betrothed, which is legal marriage without sexual expression. At the end of that year, the groom gets all his buddies together, and they have a party planned. And so they, they've got, the, you know, they've got the, the VA hall rented. They've got the DJ booked. Um, they've got wine and all sorts of kosher foods, no hot dogs. They've got wine. They've got the VA rented. They're going to have a party. And then he takes his friends in sort of a parade-like fashion. They go to her home, and she's supposed to be ready during this whole year. They go to her home, and she hears them coming, and she gets ready. And then they take her back to a wedding ceremony with all the friends and family. And then there is a week-long party where they are literally called and treated as king and queen, and during that time, basically is the honeymoon, a week-long event, with your family, a little awkward. Yeah, all right. That's the formal marriage. It's during this betrothal where Mary and Joseph have gone through a ceremony and then gone back to their families, this non-sexual year apart, that the angel visited Mary. 
and told her that she would be pregnant through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, miraculously, she would conceive and her child would be the savior of humanity. She tried to explain it to Joseph, of course, and of course Joseph didn't believe her. Why would we expect him to? There had been nobody else experienced this in history. Why would he believe her? This led Mary in a situation of pretty extreme shame in that culture. You didn't want to show up at the well during the day with your water pots, pregnant without a husband. So she was full of shame. She was shunned in her small town. Her betrothed didn't believe her. And this led her to leave, which we read in the story in Luke. She shows up at Elizabeth's house when Elizabeth is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And the Bible actually says, we didn't read this, that when she met Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who is six months in her womb, literally the Bible says he jumped in her womb. He leaped in her womb, which is sort of interesting because he had the ministry of preparing the world for Jesus. And Luke, as a doctor, just had to put that in there for some reason. Then the angel goes and visits Joseph. And he says to Joseph, you can believe Mary. She's telling you the truth. The child in her is going to be the savior of the world. You're to name him Jesus, which means savior. And then the angel says to Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. What's the angel referring to? This time where normally you'd have this parade of friends and take her home. He's saying, go ahead and take her home. You can be with her. You can live with her. But then the Bible makes very clear, but he had no union with her until after Jesus was born. Now, if you, this is for free here, but if you have a Catholic background, I married a Catholic girl. If you were Catholic, this is, this is what the Catholic Church would teach, that Mary had sort of a perpetual virginity, that Mary and Joseph were never together. The Bible doesn't really teach that. The Bible teaches they were never together though until after the birth of Jesus. And then Jesus had other brothers and sisters through Joseph. But this was not simply a young Jewish girl with a big imagination and loose morals. This was actually foretold. This is one of the greatest prophecies in Scripture, which brings us to our second point. Mary's pregnancy fulfills an ancient promise about the line of David and the coming of the God-man. What if this really was foretold? It, it makes believing Mary a lot easier, doesn't it? If, if we can say, this goes back in history a ways. She's just talking about something that we all should have expected. Isaiah was a prophet about 700 years earlier. And he was a prophet during what we would call a very troubling time in Israel's history. Israel had suffered civil war, and that civil war left the country in two. The country to the south, which was officially called Judah. This gets confusing because Judah is also one of the tribes. But the southern two tribes were called the country Judah for a period of time. That little country of two of the tribes feared an alliance between their brothers to the north, which were technically called Israel, which makes this really confusing. Judah was afraid the ten tribes to the north would form an alliance with Aram, which was basically Syria. So Judah had reason to be concerned. They thought their ten tribe, tribal brothers to the north, those tribes, the ten tribes, were going to join with Syria, and the plan that Syria and the ten tribes to the north had was to 
come and conquer Judah, and when they did so, to eliminate or take off the throne the house of David. I want you to think about this. What's at risk here? It's a lot like the story of Esther, where if the Jews get wiped out, there's no future Messiah. Only this is Israel against Israel plus Syria. And they're fearing if the ten tribes to the north and Syria get together and they take over Judah, they will eliminate, probably kill, probably massacre, so there's no future threat, the house of David. What happens technically if that happens? There's no future Messiah. It would thwart God's plan. There would be no Jesus. There'd be no savior of the world. So we look at this, well, there's a regional alliance that's lining up against Judah. They're gonna have a civil war that looks scary. No, 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 no. The coming of Messiah in the future to rescue humanity is actually at risk. And so Isaiah, the prophet, is sent to reassure the king of Judah, whose name is Ahaz, about the future. Now, if I took you to Isaiah chapter seven and we read the whole thing, it's clear that it doesn't look like it's just about a virgin birth in the future because it's clear that it's talking about stuff that's gonna happen to Isaiah in his imminent future and also the future coming of Jesus which we know to be 700 years later. So if you read Isaiah 7, it's confusing. In fact, that passage of scripture and Isaiah's prophecy is probably the most controversial prophecy in the Bible, which is why I'm going to make it really clear in five minutes. Try to. All right, here is the prophecy. All right, it's a little bit small, so we could get it on one slide. But with my glasses, I can read it. And I'll spare you the glare, so I'll look at this one. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself, here's the verse we're familiar with, this is the one Matthew quotes, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is gonna get confusing. He will eat curds and honey. Who, this child? He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. All right. Very confusing passage. If you're not confused, you're asleep or you're brilliant. This is a confusing passage. And so there are two primary, but it's, it's critical to our virgin birth prediction though. Because we know this is talking about the virgin birth. Matthew quotes it. So there are two primary views held by, I'm going to say, conservative theologians. People actually believe this is God's word. People who believe in a virgin birth. People believe in the miracles of the Bible, etc. So we're going to call those conservative theologians, okay? So there are two primary views. Stay with me. This is academic. Stay with me. If I see you nodding off, I'm going to call an usher. The double fulfillment, can I do that, Aaron? Or, okay, yes. The double fulfillment view. All right, so these are good people, and I have actually preached this. I found one of my own ser old sermons on this. I've preached this, wrongly, but I've preached it. The double fulfillment is, is, is actually accepted by a lot of conservative scholars and pastors. And that would mean these same verses, the same actual verses and the same words have a fulfillment in Ahaz, Ahaz's time and in Jesus' time. 
The same verses have a fulfillment in both. The young woman, the virgin, that word many say can also mean young woman of marriageable age or virgin. That, that in Ahaz's day, it wouldn't be a virgin because there was no virgin birth back then. That would be a young woman who had a baby. And that's also referring to the Virgin Mary 700 years later. Now, this is a very popular view, but it actually undermines the virgin birth because if it didn't mean virgin when it was written, eh, it's, just not really, it's just not really great that Matthew's using this as, a, as sort of a reference for the virgin birth. I don't believe the double reference view or the double fulfillment view is accurate. I do believe in what's called a double reference view. And there's a guy, a brilliant, I think he's a Jewish theologian, last name Fruchtenbaum or something like that. Got his book in my office. Double reference is different than double fulfillment. A double reference view means these verses are referencing multiple events at different times in the future. He's talking about one thing in the present and then one thing in the future, and it's very hard to tell the difference, but there's a double reference. Now, I want to illustrate it this way. If you're a prophet in Isaiah's day, and you're looking into the future, and you're seeing the future, sometimes Isaiah couldn't tell what was right in front of him three years later and what was 700 years later. It would be like standing in Calgary and looking towards the mountains. It's kind of hard to tell which ones are closest if they're all kind of together, you know? It just looks like it's one massive range and there's peaks and some look a little closer than others. But if you were to actually get above the mountains and go in a helicopter on a tour to Canmore, you would see one range and then another, et cetera, et cetera. You see the differences because you're seeing it from above. Isaiah couldn't see it because he was right there looking towards those mountain ranges in the future. But some things were going to happen within a few years of this, and some things were going to happen 700 years later. Now, there's actually some wonderful, irrefutable evidence to prove this. There's a movement back and forth in these verses between the singular use of the word you and the plural use of the word you. And I want to just look at this with you so you understand what I'm saying. Stay with me. I'm going to send an usher to get you. You know, stay with me. All right. He said, up until now, he's used the singular use of you as he's talking to Ahaz in the early part of this chapter. Then you get to verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you? Plural. You house of David, you the, tr the, the house of David that will give us the Messiah, you, all of you, for you to try the patience of men that you, plural, will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore the Lord himself will give you, house of David, plural, a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. He'll eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you, now it's singular again. Now he's talking to Ahaz. You he's not talking to the house of David anymore. Just Ahaz as a king. Here's what's going on. The verses before and after, verses 13 and 14, are directed to Ahaz. The sign for Ahaz is actually the sign after the promise of Jesus. When it starts in verse uh, 15 and 16, he will eat curds and honey at the time. This is a sign to Ahaz, not the house of David. 
The little boy he's talking about there is Ahaz's little boy, who if you go back to verse 3, was on the walk with him. He was told to go with Ahaz, sort of out on a walk, and God reveals this to him. And what God is saying to Ahaz, here's going to be a sign. Before your little boy gets through his age of innocence, before he's at a point where he understands right from wrong, so I don't know, five, six, seven, I don't know when that was in Jewish theology, before he understands that, these two kings, this alliance you fear, as you see the two kings you dread will be forsaken, that's going to fall apart. You don't have to worry about the ten tribes and Syria ganging up on you. Your little boy, before he's to the age of, through the age of innocence, you're going to see these kings fall. That's the sign for you. But the sign to the house of David that you have a future is verses 13 and 14. That's the plural. That sign will be a virgin will conceive and give birth to a God-man. Verses 13 and 14 are to the whole of the nation of Judah, to the whole nation, to the house of David. That sign will be a miracle. A virgin will be with child. The child will be Emmanuel, which means with us, God. Now another debatable part of this is the word virgin is a Hebrew word, Alma. There's three different choices he could have made of words here. That's debated by scholars. It's used seven times in the Old Testament. I could read every one of them for you. I'm not going to because we're going to be over as it is, which is my fault. Everyone agrees that the word Alma always means unmarried woman. Now, whether it means virgin or not, it always means unmarried woman. So if it meant an unmarried woman who wasn't a virgin, do you really think it would be in the book of Isaiah as a sign? Like you're going to have a child through fornication. And that's going to be what Isaiah, of course he's not talking about that. It means virgin every time it appears in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament, about 200 years before Jesus, was translated into Greek so it would be accessible to others who didn't know Hebrew, uses the word parthenos in the Greek. That always means virgin as well, and that's what Matthew uses as well. Also, there's a definite article in Hebrew before the word the virgin. You didn't see it in the translation I showed you, and in my opinion, that's a mistake on the translator's parts. And here's why they did that. Because they didn't make it, you know, like just flippantly. They couldn't find the antecedent in the chapter. The always refers back to a prior. If it's the virgin, you're referring back to a virgin you've referred to already. Since it's not in Isaiah chapter 7, this version just says a version. But the NIV and some other version says the version because the definite article is in the Hebrew. And the reason it does it is because there is a virgin prophesied all the way back on the second page of your Bible. The third point, Mary's pregnancy fulfills God's first promise to a fallen world. The seed of the woman defeats Satan. Isaiah 14, 7, 14 has an antecedent. It's Genesis 3, 15. Just after the fall, God is explaining sin's consequences to the man, to the woman, to, to Satan. And there was a ray of hope in this. The woman was deceived by Satan. And so God says to Satan, the woman is going to be your downfall. Her seed, literally in the Septuagint, her sperma, her seed, that very linguistic construction, according to many Hebrew scholars, disallows a human father. Some say this text itself on the second page of your Bible demands a virgin birth. 
thousands of years later. Here's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. What's going on here? Well, here's the theology of Genesis 3.15. Satan deceived Eve. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. I think Adam recognized Eve's blown it. There's one woman on the planet. Wherever she goes, I'm going. Satan deceived Eve. The woman will now be his downfall. Her seed will be victorious someday over Satan. Satan will bruise his heel, which we believe refers to the crucifixion. Satan will hurt this God-man, but the God-man will crush his head, which refers to the resurrection and the ultimate victory won. Wow, that's the second page of the Bible. It's kind of the gospel a little bit in a nutshell. I want to close with this, since we're in trouble here. First, Mary's story was always the plan. The virgin birth is a stumbling block, a source of skepticism for an awful lot of people. There are all kinds of people in sort of liberal Christian cultures and churches who just would say, well, this, these miracles, you don't really need to believe these miracles. We just, we just take somehow the moral good out of this and try to follow the golden rule, but we really ignore the miraculous stuff. That's just mythology. Well, if you can't trust the miracles, I don't want to trust the guy who thought he was God and wasn't, okay? Either he's the Lord of everything and he's God, or he's a serious nut job. And I want nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Without the miracles, we have nothing. The virgin birth is a stumbling block for many. It shouldn't be. It was always God's plan. Genesis 3, Isaiah 7, Matthew 1. We tend to be skeptical of anything because of our Western training, anything outside of the natural order. But the point of a miracle is to confirm the supernatural. How else would we know it's God? unless he overturns the laws of nature and enters in a supernatural way. We would never notice it otherwise. If miracles don't work philosophically for the modern mind, what's a God to do to get his point across? The miracles substantiated who Jesus was. Second, well, it doesn't always appear to be so. Victory is assured. This plan is described on the second page of the Bible. A savior will defeat Satan. And he's not talking about just our individual salvation and our forgiveness of sins. It's bigger than mere forgiveness. It was the threat to Satan by the, 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 the seed of the woman was an overturning of all that sin destroyed. It's a new earth, perfection restored to an earth that's cursed. It's forgiveness. It is individual salvation. It's the defeat of Satan ultimately and his work in this world. But I know and you know it just doesn't look that way. When I walk outside, when I turn on the news, it kind of looks like Satan's winning, doesn't it? It doesn't look like a world where God is clearly doing what we want God to to do. I love this story from World War II, where I was not at. June 6, 1994 was the 50th anniversary of the Allied invasion of Normandy, which began the historic World War II battle to liberate continental Europe from Nazi control. All the major TV networks ran anniversary programs that included interviews with guys who were still alive at the time. 
One of the programs paired two contrasting interviews back to back. The first was with a Marine who landed on Omaha Beach. He recalled horrors that sounded like scenes from Steven Spielberg's Academy Award-winning movie Saving Private Ryan. It was awful. The aging veteran recalled looking around at the casualties surrounding him on the beach, and he said, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. The next interview was with a U.S. Army Air Corps reconnaissance pilot who had flown over the whole battle. He viewed the carnage on the beaches and hills, but he also witnessed the successes of the Marines, the penetration by the paratroopers who had been dropped in the night before, and the effectiveness of the aerial bombardment. He looked at everything that was happening, and while his friend on the beach said, we're going to lose, he saw everything from above, and he says, we're going to win. It's obvious we're going to win. We live on the beach people. We live on the beach. It doesn't look good from here, especially in the Western world. Now, there are countries in South America and Africa and maybe Asia where Christianity is exploding. I mean, exploding in ways that we can't fathom. And We're in the Western world where we're on the run. We're on the beach. And we're just trying to hold ground and that's not happening. Everything around us in the schools and the media and Hollywood says we're losing, and we're losing badly. Looks like we're going to lose. But God doesn't operate on the beach, and God controls the course of history to the degree that he chooses to. And the Bible describes this world as governed by the prince of the power of the air, and he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the other one. And he's allowing a battle to take place but he has the heavenly view and he has guaranteed us we're gonna win and Jesus coming into the world through Mary shows that God marches on with his plan. And no matter what it looks like on the beach, the one who governs it, the one who sees the whole battle, says we're gonna win. And the manger is proof that it's true. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. And I thank you for these passages of Scripture that are full of the miraculous, which shows me, and it's intended to show us, that, that you have broken into our reality and you did things that we could never fathom through miracle so that we would know it was you breaking into our reality. I pray that during this Christmas season you would open hearts to your truth, open hearts to the possibility of God and the possibility of Jesus and the possibility of a miraculous manger and the possibility that this is actually true. We believe the Bible has great historic credibility, but most of the world does not. And I pray that this Christmas, by your spirit, hearts would be open to what alone and who alone can give forgiveness and healing in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.